Calling Dick Tracy, calling Dick Tracy. Dick, I gotta tell you about this crazy new podcast I found. It dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. And this week, they're going back to 1990 when your movie, Dick Tracy, was all anyone could talk about, but is now forgotten by so many. Yes, Dick, they talked about all of it. The racist cartoons, Al Pacino designing his own makeup, and yes, even that weird thing you did to keep the rights to the film. And after you're done listening, Dick, we need you to go to the Southside Warehouse. Flat Top and Itchy are selling stolen VCRs to watch Dick Tracy. Why, Dick? They could just stay tuned and listen to this week's episode of This Was a Thing, the Retro Podcast. Over and out. Chevy Chase Show, Showgirls, and the Rachel Haircut. This was, was a thing about this was, was a thing about bop, also was a thing about, was a thing about this was. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Now, in today's episode, we are going to be looking at one of my favorite films from 1990. It is Warren Beatty's magnum opus, Dick Tracy. You're going to be talking about Dick. We're talking about a lot of Dick today. First of all, Ray, before we start talking about this wonderful, wonderful film, and I'm, I'm, I am biased. I am biased. Do you, have you seen this movie? This before? was the first movie I ever saw in theaters. The person in front, in front of me after the film, turned around and told me and my aunt that he was very lucky that I brought my little toy cap gun that I was shooting at the uh, screen the whole time. So yeah, I think I might have been passive aggressive. He might have had a good time, but either way, either way, you were hurt. Yeah. Either way, this is a trauma. I didn't yeah. realize this was, was going to be- I was three years old. I did not realize this was going to be a triggering event, right? So, yeah, I just thought this was going to be- uh, Let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, in fact, folks, uh, if you've never seen it, that's really what today's episode is about. This was the thing Dick Tracy was because I cannot think of a film that has received or at the time received so much hype around it, then fizzled, but then hasn't made a renaissance, like has not returned- in any way, shape, or form, because usually there are some films yeah. where they do get dismissed by the critics, or or the audience doesn't come, and then years later everyone goes, "Oh my God, this is a cult." Especially that era Disney films. Yes, I I think a great example of something similar would be like Hocus Pocus. Oh, for sure. Which is a movie when it came out did not get good reviews, did not have an audience no, really, not at all. And then somehow over time, I think through multiple viewings on television, has sort of become this elevated movie that everyone now says is brilliant. I don't know how brilliant it is compared to the nostalgia aspect of it, but that's a whole other story. I think at the time it was cheap for cable channels to get Hocus Pocus and at Halloween time, you know, Halloween and the holidays, you want to have the themed stuff. And so I think it was just a, oh, that's cheap and it says Disney and there's people that are familiar. And that would, and we'll be okay. Yeah. We'll be okay. Okay. Well, um, Dick Tracy uh, has a very interesting 
journey. Dick Tracy started off as a comic strip and then went from comic strip land to television land, radio land, some movies in the 1940s and stuff, some movies. But really, the film that was directed by Warren Beatty is going to be the film that we're looking at today. It is got Warren Beatty. It's got Madonna. It's got Al Pacino doing his own makeup. It's got an acting offer to Ronald Reagan to be in the movie. It has more Academy Award winners in one scene than most movies have in it, in its entirety. And Cosmo. What's his name? And, of course, it Ch- has Charlie the great kid from Hook. And what about Bob? Charlie Corsmo. Car- Corsmo. Char- Charlie Corsmo. And if you don't know who he is, folks, he was supposed to be the next big thing. And I don't know where Charlie is right now. But he was a very talented young man. I think he got a science degree. He did good for him. Him and Mayim Bialik, I think, hang out together. Let's talk a little bit about the history of this comic strip and to understand why it was such an important part of American history. Now, before there was television, if you wanted a quick story with a visual component and a cliffhanger, got a make it come in tomorrow to buy more newspapers. The name's Hanger. Cliff, Cliff Hanger. That you most likely loved a comic strip. Comic strip was an illustration, a, sto- a story, a panel of stories that were printed in newspapers. Um, they were the, the thing that appealed to kids more than anything. So while dad's reading the front page or reading the sports section, you can be looking at the comic strips and you can be reading right along with When dad. dad's done with the front page, when dad's God done damn with it. the front page, goddammit, then you can do something. Some of these comic strips were short vignettes and some were like overarching stories that unfolded each new day. Things like Popeye, Annie, Andy Cap, Beetle Bailey. And one of the things that was rare for these artists was having somebody that was brilliant at art artistry art artistic skills, but also at the same time being able to craft a story. And the person that created Dick Tracy was able to do both quite brilliantly. His name was Chester Gould. Now, Chester Gould uh, comes from Illinois. At the age of 15, he enrolled in a $20 correspondence course in drawing, yes, he he spent $20 on a correspondence course. Now, his dad was a printer, and you would assume that if, if the kid wanted to go into journalism, dad would be supportive. Uh, dad wasn't, and said, hey, listen, you can draw all you want, but you need a real job. The dad said, look, if you get into printing, you'll be as good as Gould. <laughs> That's a sign on the window. That's why it's called good as Gould. Get it? Uh, you don't understand irony yet. <laughs> So anyway, so Chester Gould decides, okay, he's going to try to make some money with his art. So he began selling work to magazines, newspapers. He would do like in these old newspapers where they were like, oh, this is Joe Smith. He would like draw a picture of Joe Smith. You know what I mean? Like those little etchings in the corner. Oh, yeah. That was pretty much what he was doing. And he supplemented himself with sign painting. So that's how he was making his money. Now, he goes to Oklahoma A&M College. He contributed cartoons to them. And then he goes off to Northwestern to study business, like his dad was saying he needed to. He go as soon as graduation's over, he starts and he immediately goes to work for newspapers. Now you have to remember at this time there is no television, um, there is radio, but the real news was in newspapers. Everyone read newspapers, everyone got newspapers, and of course, if you remember, a lot of the newspapers were owned by one corporation. So no matter where you were living in the United States, you were pretty much reading the same news story 
that you would be reading if you were in Seattle, if you were also in New York City or Tacoma, Washington, if that all makes sense. Anyway, Mr. Mr. Gould got a job with the Chicago Evening American of, that was of William uh, Randolph Hearst fame. He would do sports editorial cartoon column illustrations, and then he had his first try at the comic strip. His first one was in 1924, and it was called The Radio Cats, and it was a comedy. He also did one Meow. called Film Fables, in, also in 1924, and that was spoofing popular entertainment at the time. Now, in 1931, in October 4th of 1931, Chester Gould's life is going to change. So in the 1920s and 1930s, while Gould was living in Chicago, what was going on in Chicago? But the mafia, prohibition. And so Gould kept looking at the fact that a lot of police detectives at this time were failing, that they weren't able to stop uh, people that were bootlegging. They really weren't able to stop the gangsters. They weren't able to stop the violence. So policemen were kind of getting a bad name in Chicago. Chester Gould wanted to fix that. So he decided, what if I create a detective comic strip? And it's one that not only glorifies the police, but also introduces the reader to how procedures work work in the police department. Things like fingerprinting, things like a witness lineup. These are things that really hadn't been talked about before, but he was going to put that into his comic strip. If you looked at other comic strips at this time, it was mostly about like violence and like, I have a super ray gun that's going to kill you. So Chester Gould comes up with this character and he names him Plain Clothes Tracy. (laughs) Plain Clothes Tracy. So his editor says, hey, this is a really great idea, but can we not call him plainclothes Tracy? And says, can we just call him Dick, like a private eye? Um, So hence, Dick Tracy was born, and he was first seen in 1931 in the Detroit Sunday Mirror, and it became so popular, got picked up by the Chicago Tribune. Remember the word Tribune, because it's going to come back a lot in this particular episode Uh in the most bizarre ways ever. And the New York Daily News. So all of a sudden, all of these newspapers are publishing the co- the Chester Gould comic strip of Dick Tracy. Gould drew and wrote every single one of them. He would uh-huh. do all uh, five during the week, and then he would do a special one on Sundays. So he was constantly having to draw and come up with new stories and new ideas. Now, the Sunday feature, I did not know this, had a companion strip about a sexy cigarette vendor <laughs> called Cigarette Sadie. So if you've never seen a Dick Tracy cartoon, like, why is this so important? Well, a couple of things. One, it was the first newspaper serial that had a continuing storyline that was realistic in genre. There was like actual real stories that were going on in the comic strip. Now, there were some other comic strips that were continuing, meaning like each day you would get a new piece of a story that was evolving. This one, though, was based in reality. The other thing was Gould's illustrative design, which was very... Angular. There are very sharp, sharp lines, and we'll post. He's got them. a chin. He got a Dick Tracy's got a chin on him. Another thing that made it really interesting was the fact that unlike a lot of comic strips, and actually a lot of television cartoons, like when you watch The Simpsons, even though The Simpsons started what in eighty seven, eighty eight. Maggie is still like one years old. Yeah. In 2022, 23, she's still one years old. Gould had the idea of having the characters get older as time went on. Okay. So like you would watch Dick Tracy's children 
actually grow up. So it wasn't like they were always in an arrested development of five or six. Okay. So you got to see them go. He based him on uh, Elliot Ness, the famous oh, yeah. crime fighter. He was untouchable. He was untouchable. But what's interesting is, is when you think of the cliche of the detective that you see like in Humphrey Bogart or James Cagney movies, the idea of them wearing like the raincoat and the fedora, that comes from Dick Tracy. Oh, wow. That comes from this idea of him creating what a detective would look like and then everybody else just stealing it. The difference is obviously Obviously, isn't Dick Tracy. It's a primary yellow color that his hat and raincoat is. And obviously, it's beige in movies with Humphrey Bogart. And like I said before, what was really fascinating was this idea that he was taking tactical police procedurals and putting them in the comic strip. And that's how Dick Tracy was solving a lot of the crimes. Now, because he was uh, using scientific methods of law enforcement, everyone loved him. J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI loved him. Scotland Yard loved him. And he would go around a lot to different places and like get celebrated and get and give lectures. But he was looked at as a hero within the police community. Some of the things that he introduces to the general public through these comic strips included facial composition, fingerprint authorization, ballistics, lie detector tests, and fabric analysis. He's also probably just teaching young criminals yeah, how say. not to get caught, you know? And of course, we have this now on our watches, so this is not going to be a big deal, but the, his primary mode of communication in the comic strip is the two-way radio, which is on his watch, mm. which is he would talk into his watch, talk to someone else, and they would respond to him. You would think that, of course, that's like, duh, everyone can do that now. But to actually think that this was a possibility at some point made Dick Tracy even so much cooler. But if there's one thing more that Dick Tracy is known for, it's probably his rogues gallery of villains. Some of the craziest individuals that have ever really graced the the, the world of, of the rogues gallery. The big thing for Gould was making sure that the name of the character sort of fit their physicality. So we had people like the mole who looked like a mole, prune face who looked like a prune. There was the contract killer flat top. Flat top. There was a Nazi spy called the brow. There was a, a singer who stole called mumbles. Flat top literally is a man with a flat. Yeah. The top oh, of his yeah. head is flat. William Forsyth. Prune face looks just like yeah. a wrinkled up old prune. The blank is a character that literally has a blank face. They have, they have no eyes, no nose, no mouth. And of course, Tracy has um, a wife, a fiance that turns into a wife. That's Tess Trueheart. They adopted a young boy together called Junior in the comic strip. He's going to be called the kid in the in the movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had a daughter too named Bonnie Braids. And in Bonnie 19- Braids? Bonnie Braids, like braiding yeah. hair. This comic strip is so freaking popular. 1934, there's a radio serial of it. 1937, Ralph Bird stars in a couple of pictures Mm -hmm. dealing with Dick Tracy. In 1950, there's a couple of live action television shows. But then in the 1960s, two things happen. This is when a lot of people say that Chester Gould and Dick Tracy jumps the shark. Unlike things like Batman and Superman, which sort of increased in popularity as time went on, Dick Tracy really had its joy in the 30s and 40s and then just sort of petered out. But Chester Gould, he's going to go out with a bang uh, because... He literally takes reality and just tosses it out the window. In the 1964 comic strips of Dick Tracy, he introduces a character called Moon Maid, who is a moon uh, from the moon, and she marries Dick Tracy's son, and they give birth to a little girl named Honeymoon, um, and she has an antenna and uh, magnetic hands. Well, of course, but she looks like Junior. But, friends, this is what's going to really put a little death knell in the world of Dick Tracy. 
If you were a child of the 50s or 60s, you might remember that there were some cartoons that were syndicated. And the way it was syndicated was there would be a, a production company, in this case it's going to be called UPA, that's going to make Dick Tracy's cartoons, little five-minute cartoons, that are then going to be sent as syndication to like local children's television shows. Did you know this, that there was like 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 every city had like an officer Joe Bolton type who was in New York. He oh, was, no. It was a guy who would be like a character, like he was Mr. Postman or Mr. Policeman, and he would introduce children's television programming during the day. Oh. But it was live. Huh. And so like you would have like your own cop in LA or your own cop character in Seattle or Texas or wherever you were watching. So they decided to have a police officer dressed with a local TV host would be dressed as a police officer. And he would talk about uh, what crime Dick Tracy was going to solve. So the TV host would be dressed as a policeman. He would get barking orders into a prop intercom and say, Hey Tracy, we need you. And then the pre-recorded voice of Dick Tracy would say, okay, chief, I'll get onto it right away. Now here's, here's the issue folks. If the cartoons were Dick Tracy solving crimes, it would be okay. But Dick Tracy's a little busy in the, in this particular <laughs> version because he farms it out. Every case is farmed out to another one of his associates. Here come the associates. They're four different detectives that will handle the crimes, so Tracy doesn't have to. The first one, let's see if you remember this, is Hemlock Holmes, and he is a loud Cockney police officer who is 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 backed up by a police squad called the Retouchables, like the Untouchables. Except for the fact that they're saying British people are stupid, he's not as offensive as some of the others that are coming up. Coming up next is Heap O'Callery, who was voiced by an actor named, quote, Uncle Johnny Coons. He was a uh, redheaded street cop who had a serious weight problem, and he had a tendency to steal apples from fruit stands. What was his name? Heap O'Callery. <laughs> now, Heap O'Callery uh, was not a friend of the large community by any means whatsoever, and the way he would get the word out on the street was he had a beatnik named Nick, and he would tell beatnik what he wanted, and beatnik would bang it out on his bongos. Now, these two, I was trying to do it in like an order from least offensive to most offensive, and these two, I think, are running neck and neck with each other. They are Jiu-Jitsu and Manuel Tijuana Guadalajara Tampico Gogo Gomez Jr., who was a detective who wore a big sombrero and was often seen lounging in a hammock. Jiu-Jitsu is supposed to be a parody of both Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto. Oh my God. Oh, my friend, how you'd like to forget. Now, in this day and age of cancel culture, this thing would not have survived, but it was deemed so offensive in the 70s and 80s, it got pulled then. That's how offensive wow. it was, that in the 70s and 80s, people were like, you can't do this. But the chairman of the UPA who created this was a gentleman by the name of Henry G. Saperstein. And when people said to him, it's offensive and we're happy you pulled it, his response was, quote, it's just a cartoon, for goodness sake. Oh, my God. Like, I had the tape of those. Oh, yeah. Well, they came, they came back out in, in popularity after the, the movie from 1990. Got so it. So these sort of made a resurgence. But also, the tapes didn't last very long because in the 90s, people were like, what the hell is this? Joe Jitsu and Gogo Gomez. I'm not even going to talk about hippocalorie. <laughs> Schools out for podcasts. Ray. I thought that was pretty good. Me too. You know what else is good, Ray? 
being one of our Patreon subscribers. Huh, how does one do that? Head on over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for This Was A Thing, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and help you relive your youth. That might not be a good thing for some people, Rob. Who? Vitorino. Oh. Let's talk about the origins of this movie, and it all belongs to one man, and that man is Warren Beatty. Woo! Now, bef- I want to be honest. Before Warren Beatty was interested in it, they were going to do a musical version of Dick Tracy in the early 1970s, and it was going to be, I believe, a TV movie. Do you know who was supposed to play Dick Tracy and who was supposed to play his girlfriend, Tess Trueheart? Jerry Orbach? Nope. This is a TV, like a TV movie, so it's, 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 you don't think Broadway. Sonny Bono as oh Dick Tracy with Cher as Tess Trueheart. Uh, that actually, uh, that went nowhere because I think they divorced. Just imagine the giant coat on Sonny. But a huge, the hu- the biggest fan of Dick Tracy was Warren Beatty, the actor Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty in the 1970s was like the golden child, like the George Clooney. Mm-hmm. He had made a pretty big splash in a movie called Splendor in the Grass. He was a gorgeous human being, but he could act as well. And so he became like this heartthrob, but it was very clear, not only was he a heartthrob, he was also a fantastic actor, and he was a smart producer. And one of the first things he ended up producing was Bonnie and Clyde, in which he starred Mm -hmm. as Clyde Barrow. That movie like really brought him to the forefront. And at that point, he was literally, every movie he was in was like a box office smash, Shampoo, Heaven Can Wait, the Parallax View, plus Bonnie and Clyde. In the 1970s, Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood, sorry, Warren Beatty could do whatever he wanted. And he wanted to make a film of Dick Tracy, not necessarily be in it, but direct it. He really loved Dick Tracy that much. But the trouble was the rights were not Mr. Beatty's. In fact, the rights were not even Chester Gould's anymore. They were owned by a producer named Michael Laughlin. So he went to Michael Laughlin. He says, I want to do the film. Michael Laughlin no interest, passes on it. Once Michael Laughlin passes on doing anything with the property, the property reverts back to oh, wow. Tribune Media Service. They're the company that owned the comic strip. So Got it's not it. Chester Gould. It's, 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 it's them who own it, right? So they go back to Tribune. Then in 1977, there's two producers, Floyd Muttrex and Art Linson, and they get the rights, they buy the rights again from Dick for Dick Tracy in 1977. Does that all make sense so mm-hmm, far? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Now, something big happens in the late 1970s. Superman with Christopher Reeve. And suddenly, this idea of a comic book or a comic strip franchise gets reignited again. So the question then becomes, well, what are some other properties that could be explored? So the, uh, Floyd and Art... You know, two good producers. What was I be putting play Floyd and Art in their in their <laughs> life story? They got United Artists interested and saying, "Hey, what if we did this as a, as a movie?" But the problem was Chester Gould was still alive, and even though they owned the rights, they anything that was done had to be done with Chester Gould's approval, and he wanted too much financial control and too much artistic control. And they United Artists, the producers were like, this isn't gonna happen, but here's what's really cool. Before they dismissed the project entirely, they hired the screenwriter Joe Mankiewicz to come on and write a screenplay. Then what happens is, is then the movie goes off now to Paramount, 
with Universal co-producing. That's now what they're going to do with it. So it's 1980. Mm-hmm. It's going to be Paramount, Universal. They're going to co-produce it. The director is going to be Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. But Universal's like, we don't want Steven Spielberg to do this. We want John Landis to direct this. And we want Clint Eastwood to play Dick Tracy. And if we can't get Clint Eastwood, we'll go to Warren Beatty. So Landis, John Landis is now going to direct the film. And so John Landis brings on Jim Cash and Jack Epps. Now, they are going to become really prominent a couple of years later because they're going to write the screenplay to Top Gun. Mm. But Landis says to them, here's what I want. I want it to feel like a 1930s pulp movie, and I want Big Boy to be the villain. That's what I want out of this film. They get to working on that, but a couple of things happen in the interim. The studio reads it, and it's like, this is too campy. Like, this is just, like, really too campy and too weird. And at the same time, John Landis gets in trouble for the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, Do you remember that? Yeah. We'll probably cover this on a separate episode, but for those of you who don't know, John Landis was directing a movie version of the Twilight Zone. He was filming a scene where an actor named Vic Morrow was supposed to run across a lake with two children under his arms, and a helicopter was going to land. And they get into the helicopter. And uh, there was a lot of mishandling of stuff on the set. And the helicopter unfortunately crashed and killed the three actors, Mr. Morrow and the two children. But John Landis got hauled into court and was involved in tons of legal battles. So he has to back away from the film. So they, the studio decides that they still want to continue on with it. So this time they go to Arthur Hill. Now Arthur Hill directed 48 hours. So one of the things I think maybe you're seeing is with all the directors they're choosing, they're kind of actiony. And for this one, Clint Eastwood says no, but Warren Beatty says yes. He's like, this is the closest I'm going to get to doing Dick Tracy. (laughs) So he plays Dick Tracy. Arthur Hill's going to direct it. They start to build the sets. And then there's a problem. Oh, boy. Problem is is, uh, the studio finds out, Universal finds out, that Beatty wanted $5 million plus 15% of the gross. Okay. And Universal was like, no. And then while Universal is trying to figure that out, Arthur Hill and Dick uh, Warren Beatty get into a fight because Arthur Hill's like, I want it bloody and violent. And Warren Beatty's like, it's Dick Tracy. It can't be that. So then that goes away. So now Universal is like, we're done with this. So it goes now back to Paramount. And Paramount's like, great, we'll start from scratch. We'll make it low budget. And who do they ask to direct their new version of Dick Tracy? Yes, everyone's favorite nebbishy actor, Richard Benjamin. Oh. Richard Benjamin uh, is being asked to direct Paramount's production of Dick Tracy. Had he done directing before? He had done My Favorite Year, which not I don't, I mean, he's a very talented mm-hmm. actor, just not necessarily yeah. the person that you think of yeah, yeah, yeah. to direct Dick Tracy. Now, in 1985, Tribune, remember Tribune? Mm-hmm. They get the rights back. And this time, Warren Beatty's like, I'm going to buy them myself. And Warren Beatty buys the rights for $3 million. Oh, wow. And he takes the Cash and Epps script with him. And in the same year of 1985, Chester Gould dies. So now they don't have to worry anymore about who's going to, like, what what can be done, what can't be done. Cool? Mm-hmm. So- He's got, now Warren Beatty has the property. Warren Beatty actually has proven himself to be a a good director. In 1980, 81, he directed a film called Reds, Mm -hmm. which was this huge, epic film. Apparently, he was very difficult to work with. Oh, good. But the the film ended up being quite 
quite brilliant. So he's proved himself as a director, but who is going to produce the film? Because now every fucking studio in Hollywood has had a taste of this and no one's ever happy with it. So we're going to enter some two new names to us. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. Eisner. Yep, of course. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner uh, were Paramount titans, okay? Katzenberg revived the Star Trek franchise at at Paramount, um, and Eisner was the guy behind countless Paramount hits, Saturday Night Fever, Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, the list goes on and on. The two of them moved over to Walt Disney Studios to take over Walt Disney Studios, and when they got there, they needed projects, and they were like, are there any projects we could look at? And they said, what about Dick Tracy? What about this thing that's been kicking around? Beatty can be in it. Beatty can be in it. Let's look at a, a different directors, though, because Beatty just literally goes so over budget and no one's ever happy with it. Um, so the first director now they're looking at is Martin Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese turns it down, so then they go to Bob Fosse, the guy who did Cabaret, great Broadway choreographer. He also turns it down. They also look at Tim Burton. He decides to make Edward Scissorhands. So they finally go, look, let's just have Beatty direct it. But there is a condition. Any budget overruns comes out of Beatty's cut. That's how they're going to keep him in line. Okay. So finally, in 1988, Disney greenlit Dick Tracy with the stipulation that the budget had to be under $25 million, which today is about $63 million. You can't go over $25 million. Okay. Now, This is where the story comes into play. What is the story of the movie? If you've never seen the movie, I would encourage you to do so. We'll talk a little bit more about it, obviously, later on. But Beatty realizes it has taken this fucking long to get this movie made. And this movie sounds like a no-brainer. It just sounds like a no-brainer. It's running on the coattails of Superman. It's got tons of different villains you can be utilizing. It's very pro-police, right? There's rumors that this new Tim Burton Batman movie, which is also superhero-y comic book, is also going to be being really good. So then that way, when Dick Tracy comes out, it's going to ride the coattails. But Beatty thinks, what if we don't get a chance to make this a franchise? And let's 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 put in as much as we possibly can because we never never get this opportunity again. Just kind of a foresight, smart, foresight, William Forsyth, who played. Flat Flat top. top. So Barry decided he wanted to get as many villains in this thing as possible. How many of Chester Gould's villains show up in Dick Tracy, the movie? We know that big boy- 23. You're so close. 21. Really? Yeah. Breathless Mahoney, 88 Keys. Steve the Tramp. Prune Face. uh, Mumbles. Texi Garcia. Influence. Ribs Mocha. There's so many here, my friend. So he decides he's going to put all of them in this movie somehow. And cast a majority of them mm-hmm. with really impressive names, my friends. So let me tell you the story of Dick Tracy, just the plot in a nutshell. He's a detective. It's 1930s. There's a war. There's a gang war going on between Lips Manless, who owns the Club Ritz and loves oysters, and Big Boy Caprice. So in the beginning of the movie, Big Boy kidnaps Lips Manless, executes him, and takes over the club for himself, Right. Now, in the club, there's a singer. Her name is... Breathless Mahoney. Breathless Mahoney. Tracy is going to try to get a a, a big boy arrested for killing Lips Manless. Now, what big boy does is he takes the club and he turns it into a gambling 
front. Tracy's also going to see if he can try to get that as well. Complications ensue. There's a lot of complications in this. Um, Tracy gets uh, accused of killing the district attorney. Big Boy sets him up. He didn't actually do it. Uh, Tess Trueheart is telling Tracy, hey, put a ring on it or get out. The kid is this orphan that Tracy finds and decides to adopt him at the same time all of this is going on. Plus, Breathless has her eyes on Dick Tracy as well. Who played the DA again? Oh, I'm so happy you mentioned that. We're going to talk about casting right now. The district attorney was played by Dick Van Dyke. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Beatty called Dick Van Dyke and said, hey, I want you to be in this movie. And Dick Van Dyke's like, oh, no, this isn't like my kind of thing. And apparently Beatty called him every single day until Dick Van Dyke was like, okay. He's like, why do you want me in this film? Why do you want me in this film? And the district attorney in the film is corrupt. There's going to be a lot of spoilers in this. Oh, he's, he's corrupt. And what Warren Beatty said to him was, he goes, I want someone that the public in a million years would never have guessed was corrupt. Oh. And he, and that's Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. First of all, in, in all fairness, Warren Beatty doesn't automatically see himself as Dick Tracy. They ask Robert De Niro, and he's like, no, it's not not for me. I don't do yellow. Uh, I don't do yellow. And they ask Jack Nicholson, who also turns it down. So Beatty's like, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. The first choice always for Big Boy was Al Pacino. Now, you have to remember at this time, Al Pacino hit it big in the 70s. Then in the 80s, it was like flop after flop after flop. We'll start with cruising. Uh, if folks <laughs> go back and listen to our cruising episode. And then it just sort of dwindled for Mr. Pacino as time went on. But he was still this great actor. And so I think the idea of they were asking him to be in this movie, I think they probably assumed he would have said no. <laughs> and he jumped at it with a couple of stipulations. The first one being that he got to design his own makeup. So the big boy makeup and outfit you see in the movie is literally Al Pacino's design of what he wanted that character to look like. (laughs) Um, Fake chin, slicked down hair, hunchback. They put plugs behind his ears to make his ears stick out. He also begged for this, and they were like, no, we can't do this. He was so happy with what he came up with. He didn't want to be billed as Al Pacino. He (laughs) wanted to be billed as a character named like Gino Fraschetti. And he was like, that's who's going to play big boy. And they're like, no, Al, like we need to say you're in the movie. As his rival, oh my God. Lips Manless, who's only in the movie in the beginning Just, of the film. And he has and he makes an impression. Lips Manless is a gross, disgusting human being who slurps oysters Ugh. and is played now by Paul Servino. But the original choice for this was Gene Hackman. Okay. And Gene Hackman was like, hey, he's like, I did Reds with Warren Beatty, never again. Uh. So he turned him down and it went to Paul Servino, who's a great actor. Who's a great actor and also played uh, Al Pacino's de- yeah, chief of police with in cruising with this uh, with the powder limp, hair with the powder hair and the limp. Yeah, the role of of uh, Breathless Mahoney is a pretty big, substantial role. It's going to be like the femme fatale of the film. And they looked at Michelle Pfeiffer, they looked at Sharon Stone, Samantha Fox, Kathleen Turner, Kim Basinger, and they were all too expensive. When somebody piped up and said, "I want to be in this movie, and you can pay me scale." That person? Madonna. Madonna. Warren Beatty's girlfriend. At the, Were they dating? As the movie went on, yes. So Madonna decides to sign on, in which she will also be singing some of the songs as well. So there'll be like an album release that goes along with it. The actress Sean Young is going to play Tess Trueheart. They look at Macaulay Culkin to play the kid. He turns it down to go do Home Alone. Hence, Charlie Corsmo. And then 
the number of people that show up in this film with one line, two line. Mumbled line. A mumbled line. It includes Estelle Parsons as Tess Trueheart's mom. Charles Durning is the chief of police. Seymour Cassell is Tracy's partner. Kathy Bates is a stenographer with one line. Dick Van Dyke is the DA. As Big Boy's living nemesis, James Kahn. So it's a little Godfather reunion. Mandy Patinkin as 88 Keys. So that's the cast. This cast is stacked. Now, Beatty also wanted to go big everywhere else. And for the music of this film, he gets Danny Elfman to do the underscoring of the film. And the lyrical songs that are actually sung in the movie, Madonna songs, they get... Broadway genius composer Stephen Sondheim, the man behind like Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods and West Side Story and Gypsy, he decides that he's going to write the score and he writes five amazing songs for this particular film. He wrote five. Wow. He wrote five. In fact, let's take a listen to one of them now because this is the song that ended up winning Stephen Sondheim's only Academy Award. Stephen Sondheim for you. Now, the visual world of this is really what people remember from uh, Dick Tracy today. Beatty brilliantly decided to use only seven primary colors. Mm -hmm. So the whole film is just one of these seven colors. They were red, blue, yellow, green, orange, purple, black. Some would say white as well, but I think it's it's those main seven. And he decided to shoot each shot as if it were a comic strip panel. So things enter the frame. The camera rarely moves, but if you notice, it has that sort of comic strip movement to it. And this is an an amazing thing with this film, which is it is one of the last films ever created not to use CGI. Oh, yeah. There are no computer graphics in this movie at all. There are 57 matte paintings. God, those are so cool how they did that. Yeah, and folks, the the big thing that people remember the most, I think, about Dick Tracy today is the visual side of it. And I will say, even if you don't like these movies, if this is like movie is not for you, you don't like Warren, but whatever, you have to at least watch it for the beauty of it's this. It's so cool. Because once we, we were saying, this is one of the last great films that you literally had to use, not to say that CGI is not artistry, but I'm talking about like visual painting. So folks, shooting begins for this film. Uh, Remember, $25 million can't go over on February 2nd, 1989. And very soon, Sean Young fired. Fired as Tess Trueheart. She seemed like she was just lively on a lot of her films that she did. Warren Beatty let her go and he said, Uh, He goes, I made a mistake in casting her. She wasn't right for the role. She said it's because he didn't, I didn't sleep with him and he got rid of me. Now, Charlie Corsmo's mom, who was on the set a lot, she chimed in and said, no, actually she was uh, problematic. So they brought in Steppenwolf actress, Glenn Headley to take over for the role. She's Steppenwolf. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. She was a big, yeah. Oh, well. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. she probably knows Lori Metcalf. Probably knows Lori Metcalf. Lori Metcalf actually would have been great as Tess Trevor. Oh, yeah. Not going to lie. The movie actually f- goes pretty well, except there's a couple of things, and they're still in the movie, so you can take a look at it if you want. There's a very famous mo- stunt where Tracy jumps off a building and jumps to a lamppost and then slides down the lamppost. It's when the car explodes. That actually is Warren Beatty. Oh, wow. That's not a stuntman. And you might notice, you're like, ooh, it looks like he smashed his face. He did. He smashed his face. So when you watch him jump and he gets hit, that's Warren Beatty actually getting hit in the face. Finally, filming ended, folks, on April 27th, 1989. After 85 days of filming, they used 53 interior sets, 25 exterior sets. They employed 305 in the cast crew and the post-production personnel. And post-production took almost a year. Now, once again, folks, don't remember, they greenlit it under the condition that Beatty kept the production budget within $25 million. His fee was $7 million against 15% of the gross. Once the distributor's gross reached $50 million. But as soon as the movie got started, costs began to rise, and it quickly jumped to $30 million. Its total negative cost ended up being $46.5 million. Oh, my God. $35.6 million of direct expenditure, $5.3 million in studio overhead, and $5.6 million in interest. Plus... They decided, Disney did, because this is Disney now, they decided to spend an additional $48.1 million on advertising and wow. publicity and $5.8 million on prints, resulting in a total of $101 million being spent overall on this <sighs> film. But their feeling was they were going to not only match Batman's gross, they were going to supersede it. <laughs> So the whole thing has been based on that because the difference they feel is, is yes, Batman was great. It was, but nobody really remembered who, nobody knew who Michael Keaton was. Nobody knew who, to, the only real name in Batman in 89 is honestly Jack, Jack Nicholson, Nicholson, right? And also all people are remembering are the campy TV show going into it. Dick Tracy is, it's a known entity. This cast is stacked. It's got Steven Sondheim. It's got Richard Silber. It's got Madonna. Madonna. Yeah, I mean, it's the, got she was like the biggest name. This in- is huge. So. In 1989, like I was saying, Batman made a fortune for Warner Brothers, not only in ticket sales, but in the merch. So Disney decides we're going to do the same thing soon. There are shirts, hats, jackets, trading cards, action figures, play sets, video games, I still posters, have the action pins. figures of mine. Me too. And the first thing that Disney does, which is actually kind of smart, is they're like, we can't really put this under the Disney label because it's kind of violent. Buena so they, Vista. So they move it to, yeah, Buena, Touchstone. Touchstone, Touchstone. They move it to Touchstone. They did a McDonald's tie-in. They created a new Roger Rabbit short to go before the film. Madonna did her very infamous Blonde Ambition tour, and she promotes it in the Blonde Ambition tour with an actor who comes out dressed wow. as Dick Tracy. It was a stage show at Disneyland, Walt Disney oh. World. There was a novel, a graphic novel. You could buy a Dick Tracy t-shirt at the box office, and that was your ticket to get in. What? They commissioned 28 different television advertisements. They re-released the old cartoons. Warren Beatty, who was notoriously press shy, was giving interviews absolutely everywhere. June 30th, folks, 1990, Dick Tracy is released. They first play in Chester Gould's hometown. Then it has its opening weekend. It makes $22.5 million in its opening weekend, $1.5 million in t-shirt sales. This was the third highest opening weekend of 1990 and Disney's biggest ever. It eventually grossed $103.74 million in the U.S. and Canada, $50 million elsewhere, coming into a worldwide total of 
$162.74 million. However, they were still anticipating this to be at the level of Batman. And what they ended up with was a $57 million deficit for this particular film. So studio chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg put in a studio memo that even though the movie cost about $100 million in total to produce, market, and promote, quote, this is a quote from Katzenberg, we made demands on our time, talent, and treasury that upon reflection may not have been worth it. Now, I will say, though, the movie ends up getting fantastic, fantastic reviews. Mm -hmm. The biggest fans of it were Siskel and Ebert, uh, or I should say at least Roger Ebert, who gave the movie four stars. Oh, wow, that's rare. And said that this is its own brilliant entity, and it's trying to do something that is so hard to do, which is to be stylized and to be camp. Uh, This is the review. Ever since I first started going to the movies as a kid, I've always loved films that go to the trouble of creating a completely new and original world for their stories to take place in. Even if it was only a movie about gigantic grasshoppers and you could see that they were only knocking over cardboard skyscrapers, that was fun for me because the whole movie was made up. And that is the special quality and the special innocence of Dick Tracy that the sets, the costumes, the primary colors, the backdrop, the makeup, the special effects all take us into this new world that we've never seen before. Vincent Canby of the New York Times, he wrote, quote, Dick Tracy is just about everything required of an extravaganza, a smashing cast, some great Stephen Sondheim songs, all the technical wizardry the money can buy, and a screenplay that observes the fine line separating true comedy from lesser camp, which is a, a pretty good review. Oh, yeah. And people did flock to it, but here was the issue that I think a lot of people had with the movie. It's, first of all, comes out at the same time as Batman. So everyone's going to automatically compare it to Batman. Yeah. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, but Batman got there first. What Batman, the, the 1989 one, I think does so brilliantly is even though it's about this guy who dresses like a bat, there's a realism to it. Oh, yeah. Those are great. I mean, there's nothing campy, I don't think, about it. But there's also a story you can latch on to. You understand humanity. Why Batman? Why Bruce Wayne? is doing what he's doing, why the Joker is doing what he's doing. So because of you can latch into that, you can't really latch into that with Dick Tracy. You know what I mean? No, yeah. The movie gets nominated for a few Academy Awards. It's nominated for Best Sound, Best Original Song, Best Makeup, Best Costume, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction. It wins Best Art Direction, it wins Best Makeup, and it wins Best Original Song sooner or later for, by Stephen Sondheim. It didn't win costume. Uh, It did not. Wow. It did not. But... It gets a nomination for one of the actors. Al Pacino, Pacino that's right. gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor. That's Folks, right. One of the fun things about this movie, honestly, is how over the top Al Pacino is and is so brilliant in it. Here's a clip of God, it's so crazy. Al Pacino <laughs> ranting. I want him dead. Both of them. I want this no face dead and I want Tracy dead. What's the matter? You bums forgot how to kill people? Doesn't your work mean anything to you anymore? Have you no sense of pride in what you do? No sense of duty? No sense of destiny? I'm looking for generals! What do I got? Foot soldiers! I want Dick Tracy dead! Eventually, they they did make their money back because uh, home video sales. Mm-hmm. But this was, and it was a pretty competitive year that year uh, for 1990. Other films that year included Ghost, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Hunt for Red October, Total Recall, Die Hard 2, Back to the Future Part 3, and of course, the slam-packed action film Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> now, this is this is where it starts to get even more interesting because we're gonna call it, we're gonna come back to Tribune for a little bit. Hello, Tribune. Hello, Tribune. Disney was hoping that Dick Tracy was going to launch this franchise, sort of like Batman was doing. Obviously, that was not going to happen. The movie was like, hey, we're not going to make a sequel. It didn't warrant enough for it. The right warrant Beatty one. Warrant Beatty. The rights sort of laid dormant. Beatty had always talked about like, yeah, I kind of want to do it. Maybe I'll do it again. Maybe I'll do it again. Um, excuse me. I'm still working on it. I'm going to work on a sequel. Maybe I'll do it again. However, in 2002, Tribune attempted to reclaim the rights, and they notified Disney. They didn't go through Beatty, all right? Beatty was like, hey, Tribune, by you saying that you're, ver- you're, you're violating these uh, the way we had worked it out in our contract, which is if how you want to take the rights back, he goes, you've now made it impossible for me to get this movie made, because if I try to take this movie to any studio, they're going to go, isn't it involved in a lawsuit? Isn't it like nobody knows who the rights are? So he starts to have fights with Tribune, all right? Disney's kind of stuck in the middle, because they're like, we don't know like where we should go. So Beatty files a lawsuit in 2005 against Tribune, seeking $30 million in damages, and saying that you just literally shat all over my ability to possibly make a sequel of it. Now, here was the thing that is so fascinating to me. You had to prove that you were working on the Dick Tracy franchise. So Tribune said, hey, we've already started doing it. We've started to create a Smallville-like television show that was going to follow the world of uh, Dick Tracy. And so we're going we're gonna to take it on, all right? Unless Beatty made a sequel, you really had no ground to stand on. Now, the contract said that Beatty had to be utilizing the character still in some way, shape, or form. So he decided that he was going to create a little sequel that would still allow him to have the rights to this. (laughs) He got Leonard Maltin, beloved film critic Leonard Maltin, and sat down on Turner Classic Movies for the Dick Tracy special in which Beatty, dressed like Dick Tracy, was going to answer questions about a possible sequel. (laughs) Therefore, using the character to tell Tribune, yeah, I'm still working on it. Hopefully, that all made sense, folks. This is a, a clip of Warren Beatty, dressed like Dick Tracy, being interviewed by Leonard Moulton just to keep the rights of Dick Tracy. <laughs> well, frankly, Dick, uh, we were surprised that you, we were willing to come here and do this interview. You've been kind of reclusive. You've dodged the spotlight all these years. And I have to ask you, what made you say yes to this television interview after 77 years of fame? I felt I really had no choice but to come and be a part of it if you wanted me to. And- uh, let's face it, I, I, I wouldn't have had much fame at all if it hadn't been for Chester Gould, who, who, who just fictionalized so much of what I, what I did. And, uh... and by the way, However, in 2011, a judge said uh, that they ruled in Beatty's favor, saying that the commencement of principal photography on that television special in 2008 was sufficient enough for Beatty to retain the Dick Tracy 
rights. So he still he still uh, has the rights. It's like Black Bart. It's like Black Bart. There's still from um, uh, Blazing Saddles. So there's still a discussion today. Of, of of maybe there'll be a sequel, maybe there won't be. And every once in a while, Beatty at, you know, 120 years old. Warren ma- Beatty likes to make us weighty. <laughs> hey, that's the tagline. I know. Where were you when we needed you at Touchstone? I've been trying to get a hold of cats. But uh, like I mentioned before, this is a movie that unlike things like Hocus Pocus and a bunch of these other films have not really had a renaissance yet. Yeah. Why is that? We'll discuss that after our break. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Warren, we just ended negotiations and I got good news and bad news and good news. What is it? Uh, Ned wants to change me and my daughter's diapers? (laughs) Okay, I'll make it quick. Um, Good news. Uh, you got the rights back to Dick Tracy, and you can make Dick Tracy too. Now, bad news. The Gould family won't let you use any of the villains who appeared in print because it messes with their royalties. But good news, they turned over all of the characters Chester thought about using, but never actually got into print. It seems he created all of these guys during the 60s. That's interesting. Uh, he was political then. Uh, who are they? Let's see. Um, Donnie the Draft Dodger, Howie the Hippie. Property value decreaser feral. Queenie the queer who is degenerating the youth of America. Whoa. One note rock star. Benny the idiot who thinks busing will work. He's an idiot. Lady Harpy who wants to leave her kids at home and have a career. Hanoi Harry. Anti-police Antony. Can't have that. And, well, this is a long one, so you might want to shorten it. Larry the look, all I am saying is if you let them move in next door, where does it end? Honestly, where does it end? You want those people living next to your daughter? Oh, oh my. Uh, speak goddamn English, Sam. Communist cookie. Send all the jobs to China, Charlie. Union organizer, Umberto. Oh, that could work. Jose the job taker and Chaim the bank. Yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to just go ahead and pass and uh you know, I'm going to finish the project I've been working on for the past 2 years now. What's that? Trying to get an erection. Thank you. This was a sketch. So, this is a film if you have not seen it. I think it's one of those things like I mentioned before. You can look at the beautiful cinematography of it and you cannot deny it. it's it's a brilliant time capsule mm-hmm. of a time when they're when CGI was not around, when beautiful artistic matte paintings had to be created in order to give these special effects. There is not one CGI in this, all right? However, I think one of the reasons that this film has not sort of resurfaced is I think a lot of the fun of the film at its time was Oh my gosh, that's Al Pacino. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's Paul Sorvino. There's the biggest music star in the world playing. That's, that's the biggest music star Working in for the scale. world. Working, yeah. And and the color, look at the coloring. That all now can be achieved. First of all, the coloring can be achieved now so easily no, with yeah. CGI, right? Yeah. You don't need to do any of the labor and beautiful labor work. So that doesn't impress anybody anymore. And also, who are these people? You don't know who Al Pacino is. You don't, and some of them are so heavily made up yeah. that you don't recognize. Well, it was one of those things are. that, like, growing up and getting older, rewatching Dick Tracy and like knowing who more actors are and stuff, and then like going like, "Oh wow, that's Dustin Hoffman." Yeah. You know what I mean? Like as a kid, like you, like I feel like Al Pacino. Like I knew, okay, that's Al Pacino, but like you know, you start, going, oh whoa, that's cool. Oh, that's Paul Sorvino. And also, so many of the movies now. 
and we talked about this with the Tim Burton Batmans, but so many like the 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 origin stories now, they take on a very dark mm-hmm. quality. I mean, I think you can look at like the like Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker as brilliant as that is, or like if you look at any of the things from the like the Marvel mm-hmm. world, there's they they're very deep, they're very realistic, they're rooted in this. This is so high campy and mm-hmm. stylized. It's hard to latch onto it because there's no psychological hook into it. So you just sort of sit back and laugh at it. And I think it's one of those things. I showed it to a friend of mine who's the same age as me, but did not see the movie. Okay. And I thought he would enjoy it just as much as I did. He didn't. Huh. He didn't. I think it's one of these things you had to have been part of the mania. Yeah. You had to have been part of, let me get the book. Let me get the action figures. Oh my God, that's Madonna. Oh my God, can I find the Steve the Tramp action figure? So anyway, that that to me is probably why this film, I think when you watch it now, it's very nostalgic. No, yeah. Absolutely. I will say the things that made it so impressive are now 30 years in the past. And I think a new audience doesn't necessarily you I think most audiences would look at it and go, Oh, that's CGI. Like, well, no, it's not. And they're it's, like it's mad. They'd go, That's CGI and that Mandy Patinkin. Yeah, or you're like, like, oh my God, she's such a stiff actress. And you're like, that's Madonna. Yeah. You know? Hocus Pocus is so like the the, the only, I keep coming back to that one because that one to me seems like Something at least similar, yeah. which is a campy movie that over time has now gotten this reappreciation. I, I feel like though Hocus Pocus, if it wasn't a Halloween movie, yes, it wouldn't get that much reappreciation. If if Dick Tracy had a scene that was Christmas sure. themed, then maybe it would get that appreciation around Christmas time. And but Hocus Pocus just happens to be about witches, and you know it just works for cr- repetitive, ho- yeah, and Halloween. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just is that time of year. Dick Tracy's a movie that you could sit and watch, you know, any month. Where Hocus Pocus, it's like I'm gonna get most of it in October watching it. Very true. Very true. It's uh, it, it, I'm so curious to see if at some point down the line someone will make dick tracy again but it won't look anything like this I, that'll be dark and psychological and you know i mean who do you know who owns does warren Beatty still own the rights warren right now Beatty still so owns he still the rights, owns the rights to this. Rights. as far as i know he still owns yeah. the rights to it i don't think tribune's going to be getting it back any anytime soon so friends this was the examination of dick tracy if you've seen the movie let us know if you remember this was a summer blockbuster which is kind of Still not really as prevalent as it once was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, you know, there's just so, yeah, ev- just every so movie makes so much mo- money. And there's so, do you know? I'm so curious. Like, if, if you get the chance, folks, if Dick Tracy for some reason is playing on a big screen around you, take the opportunity to see it on a large canvas because it really is something to behold. And if you know who these performers are and you do get a kick out of going, oh, that's Dustin Hoffman or oh, that's Paul Servino, you'll enjoy it. If not, I don't know how much of this movie is for you. But you, you're going to love Charlie Corsmo. Who doesn't love Charlie Corsmo? It's true. That's what I said. And I'll tell you, Charlie Corsmo's mom, she does not put up with bullshit. All right, time. <laughs> Let's play a game. Let's go. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a This Was a Quiz. With Mark Schroeder. So I was t- I was saying I had an idea for Mark for this game. Uh, yes. Since it's Dick Tracy, and we could get pieces of paper and put them on a table, and then we could pull out our schmeckles, and then we could trace them. Dick Tracy. The only problem is he didn't have a poster board for me. Oh Ooh. boy. 
Oh, boy. And uh, much like Chester Gould's original drawings, my dick is only primary colors. <laughs> yeah, we just got him a post-it. You know what I like about Dick Tracy? The color palette, the colors, the colors, the color. I get to admit, nobody rocked a yellow trench coat quite like Dick Tracy. No. and that's a bright yellow. Bright yellow, bright, shiny. God, that movie is good. But he's not the only fictional character who prefers to wear that color. So let's see how many others Rob and Ray are familiar with in a little game called Mellow Yellow. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a clue. About a famous fictional character who is strongly associated with the color yellow. Okay. Rob and Ray must compete against each other head to head to see who can be the first to correctly answer the clue. The one with the most points wins at the end. The loser is one yellow-bellied coward. Oh, great. Oh, boy. Ready? Here we go. This is Marge Simpson's maiden name. Bouvier. That is correct. SpongeBob SquarePants lives in what city state? Uh, uh, so, no, uh, soggy, no, soggy, soggy, soggy bottom. bottom, bikini bottom, bikini no bottom. points awarded, no points awarded. In 2000, this fictional yellow creature was named a living legend by the United States Library of Congress. Tweety Bird. No. Fuck. <laughs> um, the Carl's Jr. star? No. Oh, no points. That's a good Big guess. bird. Big bird. The oh. Carl's Jr. star. Okay. The United States <laughs> honored the Carl's Jr. slash Hardy's Hardy. foam yeah. star. <laughs> Oh, I love it. The star has not only been lighting our way for over 30 (laughs) years and treating us all to delicious fast food. Big Bird is in attendance watching. (laughs) We also want to celebrate the fact that the star fought bravely for us in the Vietnam War. (laughs) That's what nobody knows. That's a tremendous military history that Big Bird just doesn't have. Two purple hearts that star's got. (laughs) Blonde Japanese schoolgirl Usagi Tsukino is better known by this name. Powerpuff. Incorrect. Sailor Dragon Moon. Ball Z. Sailor Moon oh, is correct, young job, man. Right? I mean, I'm a fan of May. What's the first name of Sleeping Beauty? Aurora. That is correct, well, my really? buddy. Really? She had a first name? Yeah, okay. It's Aurora. God, she's got a name, <gasps> thank you very much. God. Originally a computer programmer, this yellow-clad character was later changed to be a TV reporter in New York City. April from... Uh... Ninja Turtles. That is correct. April O'Neil from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What did she get turned into? A TV news reporter. But what was she first? A computer programmer. Uh, computer program. What was her name? Like April Showers? Or April, April O'Neil. April O'Neil. April Showers. That's, that's like a, dra- You're thinking that's a of drag May Flowers. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage. April, April Showers. The inspiration for this 40-year-old yellow character was a pizza with a slice missing. Pac-Man. Correct. This is the name of Winnie the Pooh's creator. Uh, Christopher Robin? A.A. Milne. Yes. That is correct, Rob. And Curious George, what is the man in the yellow hat's real name? I don't think they ever say, right? Isn't it just always the man in the yellow hat? Barry Diller. Theodore Ted Shackelford. Ted. Ted I think he name. should stick with man in the yellow yeah. hat. It sounds better. The Minions have appeared in how many theatrically released movies? I'm going to say five. You are going to nail that question. Wow. Despicable Me in 2010, Despicable Me 2, Despicable Me 2 in 2013, Minions in 2015, Despicable Me 3, Despicable Me 3 in 2017, say that five times fast, and nope. Minions The Rise of Gru in 2020. Wow. Yeah, I think Rob, I think, Rob, ooh, actually, well, hold on. Marge Simpson, no mm. bikini bottom, no big bird, Sailor Moon, Aurora, April O'Neil, Pac-Man, Milne Minions? He just got five. He just got five. So okay, I, I'm, you got four to his three. 
Okay, Rob wins that okay, game. Okay, great. Hey, hey, buddy. Be Just, happy for me. This is why I prefer the games where you work together. That when you work together, it doesn't have to come into moments like okay, this. Okay, okay, okay. You're right. I don't want to see Mark cry. Can we Can we still do the, the Dick Tracy thing? <laughs> sure, get some paper. All right. While you're getting the paper, folks... Um, you can look at the Dick oh, Tracings boy. if you go to our podcast at This Was a Thing Pod. You can also visit our website, thing. Oh, there it goes. It's hitting the mic. Uh, ow. D- this was a thing. Pod- <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> .com. Oh, he's actually tracing. That's it. a vein. Ow. Oh, I ran over some foreskin. Oh, okay. geez. Okay. Over a bump oh, in the road there. Well, You're going to get lead poison in there, buddy. All right, friends. We will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was a Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was a Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors, and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was a Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 